1: We're we're seeing, again, more intense fires. Fires are burning more rapidly. They're getting larger. The the 100,000 acre or more fire used to be the exception to the rule. We might get that every few years. We're getting multiple 100,000 acre fires each year.
2: Welcome to Rage. I'm Amy Westervelt. That was Cal Fire Chief Ken Pimlott you heard from in the intro. We're talking fire today and climate change and lawsuits. This fire season, like every fire season before it in recent years, has been the worst on record in the West with fires destroying hundreds of thousands of acres from British Columbia to San Diego. During last year's fire season, Pimlott mentioned to me that one big part of the problem is that it's just not cooling off at night the way it used to. Climate data backs that up. Nights are warming faster than days. And humidity isn't increasing at night as much either. So this period when firefighters used to be able to reliably get ahead of a fire just isn't there anymore. Here's Pimlott explaining more about how conditions have changed.
1: It really is going to get worse. The last several years have just shown us every year it continues to progress, and things are changing. If you ask career firefighters out on the fire line who have been doing this 30, 35 years, these are not the kinds of fires or the conditions we were facing you know, just a few decades ago. Climate change is real. It's happening. We're we're seeing, again, more intense fires. Fires are burning more rapidly. They're getting larger. The the 100,000 acre or more fire used to be the exception to the rule. We might get that every few years. We're getting multiple 100,000 acre fires each year.
2: This episode is sponsored in part by Zola, the wedding company that will do anything for love. Zola is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. From engagement to wedding and decorating your first home, Zola is there, combining compassionate customer service with modern tools and technology. 500,000 couples have already used Zola to take the stress out of wedding planning with a free wedding website and your dream wedding registry. They offer affordable save-the-dates and invitations and really easy-to-use planning tools so you can manage everything online and in one place. You start with your free wedding website that's super easy to set up. You can choose from 100 beautiful wedding website designs that fit any style or type of wedding. And then you can put your Zola registry on the website so that guests can get all the details in one place and buy your gift there too. It's great. The registry part is super easy too. The Zola store has the widest selection of gifts at all different price points. There's free shipping and returns, price matching, and you can choose from over 500 brands, including OXO, Cuisinart, Sonos, and Airbnb. You can also create funds for your honeymoon, future home, a new puppy, anything you want. Plus, you can register for gift cards to your favorite brands like Delta, Southwest, Hulu, Home Depot, and more. To start your free wedding website, and also get fifty dollars off your registry on Zola, go to zola.com/range. That's z-o-l-a dot com/range. Okay, back to the
0: show.
2: The other problem, of course, is the extent to which we've built into the forests, or as planners and firefighters and forest management folks call it, the wildland urban interface. That phrase sounds like it's describing log cabins in the woods, but these days the wildland urban interface is pretty much suburbia. In the West, almost half of all housing units are in the wildland urban interface. Here's Jack Cohen, a research scientist with the U.S. Forest Service, to explain.
3: Hundreds and thousands of houses that are destroyed during a a particular wildfire aren't houses that are scattered amongst the woods. They tend to be houses that are in suburbs.
2: Over several years of studying fire damage, he's seen a consistent pattern. And that pattern is inconsistent with how we tend to think about or try to manage fire.
3: What we found were totally destroyed houses surrounded by green trees. Fire isn't just rolling through the neighborhood like a tsunami of hot gases because that would have ignited the vegetation.
2: Cohen says we also don't understand the difference between the intensity of a fire that would burn a house down versus what might cause harm to a human.
3: What gives us pain and injury from that heat is significantly less than what it takes to ignite wood or even char it.
2: The general belief that all fires are intense enough to set our homes ablaze has led to a sort of zero-tolerance policy for fire, which has led to increasingly larger fires. Because trees are left to grow, unburned, and then they not only provide more fuel for fires in general, but they also start to grow together to create a canopy that spreads fire
3: quickly. So we're working against ourselves.
2: These practices, combined with climate change, not just those warmer nights I mentioned before, but also intense and longer heat waves, and those vicious cycles of drought followed by intense storms, which generate more fuel for fires, have led to the sorts of massive scale fires we're seeing this year. And seeing increasingly every year, like the one that decimated the Northern California town of Paradise earlier this month. And because firefighting funds come out of the U.S. Forest Service's budget, it's tough for forest managers to work on any sort of preventive measures. More than half the agency's budget goes toward fighting fires. Several Western politicians have proposed the creation of a fund that would pay for fighting catastrophic wildfires. They succeeded in unlocking additional federal funding in some years, but there's still no long-term solution. Tom Blush, a regional director with the U.S. Forest Service in the Sierra Nevada region, explains
3: the fires are sucking away our funding from just about everything else we do.
2: Still, Blush and his team in the Sierra foothills has managed to make progress on an interesting project aimed at helping West Coast forests adapt to climate change. I went to visit him at this really cool, hidden little test forest they have going in the Sierra. Half an hour east of Auburn, along a windy road deep in the Tahoe National Forest, the forest hill orchard seems like an unlikely place to be planting the seeds of the future. Tom Blush, the U.S. Forest Service Regional Geneticist for the Pacific Southwest, is walking around the Assisted Migration Orchard. This is one of 48 sites where the British Columbia Ministry of Forestry and the U.S. Forest Service have been studying trees since 2013. The idea is to gauge how various species adapt to warmer temperatures, and the research is already influencing forest management. Assisted migration is the relatively new idea of moving species around in anticipation of climate change.
3: In looking at the academic literature, I'm pretty sure that the climate change is going to be happening very rapidly and and, uh, we need to start getting into the mindset of practicing assisted migration as a routine management effort.
2: The U.S. Forest Service practices what Blush calls a conservative approach moving seeds within the same species from one elevation to another. For example, his crew might take a ponderosa pine seed that grows well in Auburn and plant it about 1,000 feet higher in elevation near Grass Valley. For thousands of years, trees have migrated on their own, but with climate change happening more quickly than anticipated, humans are stepping in to help.
3: We're pretty sure that warmer temperatures are coming, so our initial approach is to compensate for that by moving to a higher elevation where the temperatures uh, are gonna be not as warm as they are down lower. Some researchers are looking
2: at even more aggressive strategies that would introduce new species to local forests, but Blush says the Forest Service isn't quite ready for that yet.
3: We're trying to be very conservative initially. We're, We're certainly not moving any species out of its native range or anything like that yet.
2: That's good news for Patricia Maloney, a tree geneticist with the UC Davis Tahoe Environmental Research Center.
1: These are drought adapted, you know, species, conifers and stuff and they physiologically they're totally different and I think there might be some watershed hydrological consequences. Nature has a way of sorting its way out and I think humans have a or many people have this preconceived idea like we want this forest type. But you know what if the climate is changing, it's going to shift.
2: Maloney is one of just a handful of forestry experts who isn't totally sold on the idea of adaptive migration.
1: I feel like sometimes I sit by myself on this argument about climate change and, and species and what they're going to do. I've always said, you know, tree species have enormous genomes. And I always say their, their genetic makeup is like, they got a bag full of tricks we have no idea about.
2: Meanwhile, there's still the issue of funding for any type of forest management, especially given the ever-increasing cost of fighting fires. One way communities are trying to cover the cost of adapting to climate change is by attempting to hold heavy polluters legally liable for their contributions to climate change. Climate liability suits have been filed throughout the country and particularly in the West. They allege that oil companies knew early on about climate change and the role their products play in it and actively worked against anything that would curb emissions or production, thereby knowingly contributing to the damage their products caused. Marco Simons is the lead attorney on a suit in Colorado, where the communities of Boulder County, San Miguel County, and the city of Boulder, with legal support from Earth Rights International, the Hannon Law Firm, Niskanen Center, and other co-counsel, filed a lawsuit against Suncor and ExxonMobil. The communities have demanded that these companies pay their fair share of the costs associated with climate change impacts so that the costs don't fall disproportionately on taxpayers. A big part of the case is the decades-long disinformation campaign funded by oil companies and other fossil fuel interests to misinform the public and block action on climate. Here's Simons on that.
3: They did such a good job that the public is more skeptical of climate change now than the oil companies are.
2: The Colorado suit is interesting for a couple of reasons. It was the first of these suits to be filed in a non-coastal region. It limits the suit to just two oil companies. Others have sued groups of 5 to 30. And one of the primary legal forces behind the case, the Niskanen Center, is a libertarian group. For libertarians, the issue here is private property damage. In a statement about the suit, Niskanen Center attorney David Bookbinder said, quote, For hundreds of years, the common law has insisted that people who damage property should be held liable for their actions. And this case seeks no more than to protect property rights and the rule of law. It reminded me of something Marty Hofert, a longtime climate scientist and NYU researcher who consulted for Exxon until the company's denial campaigns got to be too much, said to me a few months ago.
3: How can it be conservative to destroy other people's private property without compensating them? And that's exactly what happens. Exxon sells its product, it gets burned as fossil fuel. This Goes into the atmosphere. It warms the atmosphere globally, and it changes the nature of the climate and the weather. And as a result of that, people's homes will flood, people's homes will burn down, businesses will burn down, hurricanes will become more more intense, destroying the beachfront uh, and gradually raising the sea level so so that regions that are now Desirable, uh, secure property are going to be flooded here in Florida. Miami is already being flooded on a regular basis.
2: There are currently suits of all types attempting to hold fossil fuel companies responsible for their roles in exacerbating climate change. The response to these suits is often something along the lines of, but we wouldn't have modern society without oil, or but we all make decisions about driving and flying. Both of those are true, but they also ignore another simple truth. Most of us are only really choosing between the options given to us by those in power. Environmental sociologist Bob Bruhl has a neat explanation for this.
3: The idea that we're all responsible for climate change because of our individual decisions is a profoundly unsociological understanding of how behavior is formed through Cultural influences, behavioral influences, and economic factors—it's blaming the victim for the real decisions that are made about how do we structure our cities, how do we how do we set energy policy, how do we set the cost of automobiles, and things like that. It it obscures the power of vested interest to be able to shape our lives.
2: For systemic change to happen then, particularly at the level that the latest National Climate Assessment and the latest global IPCC reports say we need, industries, companies, and people in power are all going to have to work together. The West, in particular, has a lot to lose if they don't. Is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Our music is by David Whited. Original illustrations are drawn for each episode by James Guthman. As always, please send a note with any ideas or feedback you have on these episodes to howdy at rangepodcast.org. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.